we've subsidized um, housing at the far reaches of our communities that make it more impossible to take transit. And we've basically subsidized it such that people, you know, feel like it's the way to go. So the reason I think that it's gotten so to the point where we rely on cars so much is because it's just kind of drilled in. From this to this. This is Livable City, a regular podcast guiding us on a journey to more human places. I'm your host, Jim Hodap. I'm excited you're here to learn, to listen, and to lead. Welcome. I'm so happy that you chose to listen to Livable City. I'm Jim Hodap, host of this bi-weekly podcast. I hope you all got a chance to listen and enjoyed the last episode with Chris and Melissa Bruntlett of Modacity Life. I still can't believe that I had the privilege to speak with them about their amazing work telling their story of low-car, cozy, enjoyable, safe cities. It was such a fun and meaningful conversation for me to have. So I've got an idea that I'm really excited about, and I'm wondering who else would be up for trying something with me. Chris and Melissa said they would happily host anyone who wants to head over to the Netherlands for a bicycle tour of Delft. I was thinking it'd be amazing to do a trip and form a first-ever event bringing several livable city listeners and community members together for this. Who wants to join me for a fun summer holiday trip? I was thinking we could plan a trip for some time this summer whenever is most convenient for those of us who are interested. If you've never been to Europe, or more specifically a Dutch city, and experienced what cozy, low-car city streets are like, you definitely owe it to yourself to try it out. I don't think I'm over-promising, but I do promise you that it'll change your perspective and possibly your entire life to experience this. If you're interested, get in contact with me, thelivablecity at gmail.com, or DM me on Twitter or Instagram at livable underscore city and let me know what you're thinking once i get enough interest i'll get a list together and we can start to pick a date that's good for the majority of folks and a more detailed plan together i think it'd be a ton of fun and we'll bring several of us together to make longer lasting connections and learn from what the dutch have built now on today's episode a little bit who's my guest my guest is jeff wood I think you're all going to really enjoy this conversation with Jeff that I had because he's such a, an amazing, knowledgeable guy who is super passionate about transit and alternative ways of getting around cities, at least for North America. And he was passionate enough to start his own podcast called Talking Headways, which is part of Streets Blog Network. And he's also founder and principal of a consulting company called The Overhead Wire. Jeff also produces a weekly subscription newsletter, also called The Overhead Wire, bringing all kinds of relevant news about cities. So if you love this podcast, you'll also definitely love the work Jeff is doing. After listening to this episode, you owe it to yourself to go and check out Jeff's work. As always, I'll include the relevant links in the show notes below. So I've been starting a new thing where I tell you a little bit about what you can expect in the upcoming episode. So for this episode you'll get a reminder of why cities exist. And that reminder is, they're for people to congregate with each other, according to Jeff. You'll also hear us talk about why dense cities are fundamentally at odds with most people owning and driving cars. You'll also hear why Jeff believes that economics and climate will eventually drive North American cities to change how they're laid out in very profound ways. 
We also talk about why Jeff thinks North American cities will eventually choose to prioritize cars over people, and how it's also a choice to move to low-car and increased high-quality transportation options. Next, you'll hear why it's important to Jeff to be known and to know others in his neighborhood that are reachable by walking, and a whole lot more. So without further ado, I give you my conversation with Jeff Wood. Please enjoy. Jeff, welcome to Liberal City. So excited to have you join me today. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm a big fan of your work you've been doing with your own podcast, Talking Headways. So it's a, it's a lot of fun for me to have you on the other end and such an honor. Oh, well, thanks. I appreciate that. <laughs> I appreciate you listening. Yeah, I, I love your podcast. I've been, been a listener for quite some time. So, so glad to have you here. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work you do? What keeps you busy doing your great work? Sure. So um, I guess, how do I start? This is a question I get a lot. It feels like uh, from Office Space, where the Bobs are asking uh, the main character, what does he do here? <laughs> what, is it, what is it you say you do here? <laughs> what exactly? Um, so I, I have a company called The Overhead Wire, and I guess it's a media company, though I also do some consulting if um, folks you know, request that. I'll do mapping and cartography, data analysis, that type of thing. But for the most part, it's turned into a, a media company. And uh, I d- have a podcast, as you mentioned, and I do that uh, basically twice a week. We have one show on Monday called Mondays at the Overhead Wire, where we kind of go over a review of the week's news from the week before. And then we have a Thursday show called Talking Headways, which is an interview show. So we do that. And then I have a newsletter that I do, which is um, most of my work. Uh, every day I go through about 1,500 newsletters, news items, and uh, take That's the 30. Lot. Yeah, <laughs> it's skimming. I don't read them all. <laughs> uh, and I take the 30 I think are the most interesting, and I send them to my subscribers. Uh, it's a subscription news list, and folks from around the country and, and the world subscribe to it to learn about transportation, urban planning, urban design, urban issues, environment as it pertains to cities, and uh, and uh, research from coming out from universities. So I do that, and then I also do some other stuff like we do live streaming at conferences for places like I'm about to be at the Shared Use Mobility Summit soon. Um, we've oh, been awesome. At, right here in Chicago. Yeah. We've been at NACTO a couple of times. I've been in other places too. So I do that uh, from time to time and also do work for um, other companies collecting news and information for them. So just uh, I'm, I kind of have a lot of different things going on right now. And I'm, I'm about to do a couple of more things, but, um, but maybe we're going to talk about that at another time. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Yeah, I just want to say thank you to uh, Jeff for our listeners. Jeff's been helpful in getting this podcast started, uh, giving me tips and tricks from all of his experience. So, yeah, thank you, Jeff. Oh, well, no problem. I've just been answering your questions, and that's the easy <laughs> part. The hard part is starting, getting, you know, you starting the podcast and getting going. Oh, it's been actually a, more work than I thought, but it's a, <laughs> it's a labor of love. <laughs> How much work did you think it was going to be when you started? Uh, <laughs> I thought it'd be a little more autopilot. Um, I definitely have gotten into a rhythm and I've got my template for things. But, um, you know, if you want good content, you have to spend a lot of time and thought. Yes. Yeah. I, th- I find that helps. <laughs> yeah. Just a little bit of thought. Yeah. So I'm curious, what, what do you love about cities? I'm, I'm assuming you love cities since you, uh, you do stuff about, you know, transit a lot with your podcast and the overhead wire. Uh, why cities for you? Oh no, I don't like cities at all. They're the worst. <laughs> no. Um, no, I just I've always had a fascination with cities, places where people congregate. It's 
been kind of an interesting journey because I grew up in the suburbs. I actually grew up in a suburb of Houston called Kingwood. And oh, it was called the Livable Forest. And I lived in a place where it was pretty much, you know, one house for, you know, maybe a half an acre, a quarter of an acre, uh, maybe some places in, in the development were one house per acre. And uh, it was it was full of trees. And so you had these rules where you weren't allowed to cut down your trees if you were going to develop a lot. So you had a certain amount of um, space for greenery that was required if you were going to live in the place, which is an interesting kind of thing for a single-family neighborhood, I feel like. But I grew up there, and but I was always traveling to uh, cities. So I, my, my, uh, my mom grew up in San Francisco. Um, my dad grew up... Uh, multiple places around the world because he was an army brat, but he uh, he ended up in the East Bay in here in California. And uh, we always visited my grandmother and my noni uh, here in, in the Bay Area. So I was going to uh, San Francisco a lot. I was visiting here and um, that was fun. So I kind of got to feel what a city was like when I when I was younger, even though I lived in the suburb and grew up in a suburb. Yeah, absolutely. And also in my suburb... Um, something that was a little different than most suburbs is that there's a trail network about 90 miles worth that goes through the whole uh, subdivision. And the subdivision, you know, Kingwood's about a, a, an area of about uh, seven miles by uh, five miles or so and about 65,000 people. So it's not small per se, but it was kind of an outlying suburb. But the trail network, you could actually go from the front to the back of Kingwood um, on the bike trails, so hiking bike trails as we called them, and without crossing a major road, there was actually underpasses going over and under major roads. So well, that's awesome. Not, yeah, not really what I think of when I think of a Houston suburb. No, no. And actually, if you look at, if you take a, if you Google um, uh, bike network for the city of Houston, because it's been annexed and it was annexed in the 1990s to the city of Houston, so now it's part of the city. But if you look at Houston's bike network, network, you'll see, you know, the regular kind of like green lines that are going on major streets in the city or minor streets in the city. And then up in the top like right corner, <laughs> you'll see this massive string of, of bike routes that are basically the Kingwood Trail Network. So that's that was, amazing. That's kind of a cool place to grow up. So I, I, I was biking from a really young age because that's how we got places. We went to the baseball card shop. We went to go to the corner store. We went to other places to see our friends on the weekends and on the weekdays when we had time. In the summertime, we were biking everywhere. So it's kind of an interesting thing growing up in a suburb that's so dependent on cars, but you also have the bike access and then also going to visit these really cool cities like San Francisco when you're a kid. So yeah, that's kind of how I got into it, I guess. Okay. So it sounds like that really informed uh, what you prefer these days. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. And also my dad, he took the bus actually from the from Kingwood downtown to Houston every day. So um, there was a commuter bus that goes direct from from the, the suburb to the city. And he, he rode it to work and home from work every day. And at some point I calculated how much, uh, you know, brain waves... <laughs> <laughs> he saved by taking the bus instead of driving every day, but uh, that was that was a big influence as well. So I, I assume like that was uh, probably putting in some of the foundation for your interest today, right? Like watching your dad take the bus uh, to and from the downtown Houston, and having had a quite a you know a metropolitan type living himself growing up with the military. Yeah, I think so. I think that was kind of a. It, I think what it does is if you do it and and your kids see it or you know friends see that you you're doing it and it's okay, then you kind of get the idea that it's okay too. And so when I went to college in Austin, 
I um, I was more than happy to take the bus, and I was ne- I was never really scared of it or anything like that. I think some people are, but um, it was an easy way to get around. And so, even before um, I went to planning school, I was taking the bus to get to and from school because, well, a parking was expensive <laughs> and unrealistic, um, but b just it was the easy way to go. And and um, a lot of people rode the bus, and also I mean they gave us free transit passes, so that helped too. So I think that that was probably part of the experience getting to where I am now. Yeah, yeah, free always helps for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, they weren't free, I guess per se, because we paid for them in our in our fees <laughs> for right. going to school, but no but, additional cost. But yeah, but it was it was easy. Bar- you know, there was a less of a barrier to entry to just swipe your your student ID. Totally. So uh, switching gears a little bit, uh, I like to ask this broad question to everyone that I interview. So what do you think? You know. Jeff, what are your are, are the important qualities that are important to you that make a place very livable? Well, the ability to get places without cars, I think, mm-hmm. is one of the big things, and I think that's probably the major thing for me. So here in San Francisco, where I live, I have access to a bus line that comes every ten minutes, uh, a streetcar line that comes every ten minutes within a half block of my of my house. So I can pretty much get anywhere in the city without having to um, to get in a car. It does get a little difficult sometimes if you're trying to go hiking on the weekends or something along those lines. But for most everyday trips, I can walk or bike or take transit to get places. I actually sold my car in 2010 um, because it was just so easy. But um, but that's one thing. I think a commercial street nearby with everything you need is helpful too. It's hard when you're living in a kind of a compact area, but there's really no place to go. So on my street, I I chose specifically in part because there's a grocery store close by about a quarter mile away. There's a lot of shops and stores where I can go and get other things, a bookstore, um, corner store, donut shop that's open 24 hours, all those types of things. So it's easy to just, you know, if I need to go and get something, I can just walk out of the house and and go down the street and and get it without hopping in a car too. So it also makes those kind of interactions, those many messy interactions, I guess, as you'd call them, um, possible where you can see people you see every day. I go into the bagel shop and they know what I want when I go in there. <laughs> I have, you know, nice relationships with some of the folks in some of the stores around here. So it's um it's one of those things that that, you know, humans like other humans and and uh, well for the most part anyways. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, most of the time. <laughs> for the most part, I feel like. <laughs> um, but you know, having those interactions with people that you see on a daily basis I think is really beneficial. You know, seeing your neighbors, being able to kind of converse with them and ask them how things are going. Uh, coordinating with my neighbor uh, about how the the tree planting is going and, and the, the trees that are <laughs> supposed to be coming in, yeah. so those types of things I think are are really great for for urban places. And I don't think you you know necessarily need it to be super dense, although that's helpful. Or you know, um, suburban isn't uh, couldn't be I guess kind of the same way too if you're in a walkable area. But um, but walkable transportation uh, friendly, easy easy to get around and. And also just um, having the access to all the things you need. Yeah. So I heard you say, um, you know, access to uh, people around you that that know you, right? You're known at would you say the the local donut shop or yeah, the bagel shop, yeah, the bagel shop, right? <laughs> yeah, probably bagels are better than donuts for health reasons. I, but, I uh, do like the donut shop too, but I try to get the bagels more often. <laughs> donuts are good for your health in other ways, <laughs> <laughs> mental health, exactly. So. Why is that important to you? You know, um, it, it, it like I said, it is a theme that I've heard multiple people on this podcast talk about, and they have their reasons. Why is that important for you? 
I think it's just a sense of community. You feel like you're part of the community when people recognize you as part of a community. You know, um, being able to go into the bagel shop and not even have to say what I order is just kind of a familiarity thing. And it's nice to have people acknowledge your existence, I guess. Um, humans yeah. like that. So yeah. I think that's part of it. Um, I think it's also just helpful to uh, think about your life in a certain place. I mean, I think one of the things why um, homeowners feel like they have kind of a superiority uh, many times over renters is that they are more entrenched in a place maybe uh, because they own their home and they're they're stuck there. But I think if you are a renter and you live in a place long enough, you feel, feel like part of that community as well. And you should be, you know, welcome as a part of the community too. So, I rent my place. I've been here for almost uh, fourteen years now, and I feel like a part of the community, even though I don't own this house. But I've, you know, been part of it because I have my neighbors that I've known for, you know, that amount of time. I've been to these places that I contribute to uh, in terms of purchasing items or being part of the community in that way. So I think that's that's part of it. Um, that's a big part of it. Yeah, I too rent. Um, I've owned a couple of times already um, in Indianapolis, but now in Chicago, I've only rented. You know, and I've I feel just as invested, but actually in slightly different ways than when I owned mm-hmm. in my neighborhood. In some ways, it because I don't own my uh, my place, right? I'm not I'm not super stuck on like changing it on the inside or changing it on the outside <laughs> if I have a house, right? Or like going to Lowe's or Home Depot to get get something else to you know. Retail right. therapy kind of thing. So, in some some sense, for me at least, I have more of an outward onto the neighborhood kind of focus because I rent. Oh, that's an interesting point. That's an interesting point. I feel like I've been. I definitely wish I could change like my kitchen and my bathroom, but I can't because it's times. not mine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I do find myself making smaller changes. Like um, we we did avocados, so we've grew from seeds, and now we have plants, and so I put those up in the front room. I have trying to grow some uh, flowering plants for the butterflies because we have a catastrophe going on with the reduction in species around the world, and I'm just trying to do my little part. <laughs> That's and, awesome. Uh, I guess when I grew up, I, my mom was always planting plants, but I never really thought much of it, and I killed a couple of cacti in my room. But now, uh, maybe that I'm older, I kind of appreciate it more. So I'm doing those little things, you know, that that uh, make me, I guess, a part of the global community as well. <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah. Uh, kind of a different focus. I love it. Right. Um, do you think that livability is is a pretty subjective concept, or do you think it's uh, there's there's more of a universal set of goals that like places should be striving for? I think I think it's both. Right. I think you have people that like certain things the way that they are, and you have other folks that like things different. You have people that don't like to live in denser urban areas. They don't like the hustle and bustle, the noise, um, the Thought of having to interact with too many people. My sister is one of these folks. She doesn't. Uh, she she thinks not that I'm crazy, but she she's just not into <laughs> living in a city. She wouldn't yeah. live in in my house if she had the choice. She lives in a small apartment in in Martinez, um, out uh, in the suburbs of of the Bay Area, and I really likes it there. And she has access to stuff too. Um, but I think it's more of just kind of a personal preference. And I think you see this kind of sometimes on political lines too. You'll see people who prefer uh, cities versus people that prefer rural or suburban areas. Um, but everybody that lives in one of these places, <laughs> whether they are, I guess, conservative or liberal, can also be a NIMBY too. So 
I think a lot of times people, when they move somewhere, they like the place that they move to, and that's why they chose it. So they don't want it to change. <laughs> so yeah, it's really point. fun. It's funny in that way because you have people that live in Manhattan that don't want a new taller building, <laughs> even though they're already living in a tall building themselves. And then you right? have people here in San Francisco that you know they live on a street with three, four story buildings, but they don't want a four story building going up next to their um, their place because they're worried about the parking or they're worried about shadows or they're worried about something that really won't affect their quality of life too much, but they just kind of like it the way they liked it when they, when they bought into this to where they are. So it's weird. Humans are weird like that. We don't like change too much, but we like the places where we like to live. So livability, I think, is a little bit subjective. But at the same time, you have this situation where everybody's livability feels like it's under attack at all times because they like the places where they are. It does, yeah. And I was just thinking as you were talking, you know, like I think uh, when you zoom out, right, you step back, uh, I think a lot of people would agree on more universal things about what makes a livable place, right? But it's like when you were, as you were saying, right, when you when you zoom into the specific thing, right, I've got my three-story condo building that I live in or something like that and somebody's you know proposing something next to it all of a sudden it, it all that vision kind of goes out the window and it's about hyper specific what's around me that people get kind of stuck in yeah or what's going to affect me personally yep yeah so it's always about parking it's always about shadows it's always about noise it's about the things that'll impact somebody personally which is you know it's it's too bad because i think that we can we have a serious crisis right now with housing. Yeah, especially in, a lot in California, of big cities. And so, if we can't build cities, uh, you know, new housing for people, then we're kind of up a creek in terms of separating out of the classes and and getting to a place where we're not allowing newcomers to come and make their their home. Um, I think it's it's a terrible situation, but I think we'll fix it eventually. But it take it'll it'll take some pain, maybe, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. Yep. A little stumbling blindly around. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you've got a strong focus on transit in cities. So what do you think about public transit and and how does it add to livability in your opinion? Well, I think when you get into an area that is so, I guess what you call it, space constrained, there's only a couple of options that you can have for m- moving people uh, to get to the places where they want to go, whether that's to go to the grocery store, to go to work, to go to their appointments, whatever it might be, um, school. And um, transit is the best option for some of those spots. So the ability to get a lot of people in a small amount of space is really important. So in Chicago, for example, I'm looking at this map on <laughs> on the, the podcast uh, program, and it's Chicago. And I can see that real dense web of streets downtown. And I can't imagine going inside the loop in a car it just doesn't make any sense. Many people do it every day. I know I, many people do it, but they don't make sense to me. <laughs> they don't to me either. <laughs> um, I've, you know, I've had met plenty of conferences and other uh, meetings down in that area, and I'm always taking the subway or the L, um, and uh, it makes way more sense. So, from a from a regional perspective, I think having access to the the ability to fit more people in a smaller amount of space is a is a really important part of transit. And it's also one of those things where um, you're providing a service to all of the people in a region that you know live and work there, and it's kind of a collective 
uh, mobility action rather than an individualistic one. So streets might be something that are super expensive and the roads are super expensive. Um, transit's expensive too, but you're doing it together instead of buying your own you know, conveyance on the, on the surface. So if you purchase yourself, you can't purchase yourself a bus, but you can purchase yourself a car, but that's a really heavy expense. And so I think it was Scott Bernstein who was talking about commuting costs back in like the early 1900s. And for the average American before the car, I think it was around 2% uh, of your of your income was used to commute or to go to work um, or to travel generally. And now the average American spends around 19%. And so without that collective action of transportation that comes from transit or even walking or biking or or scooters or whatever the next kind of conveyance might be that's not a, a four-door vehicle, um, you have these higher costs. Your expenses are higher. We're spending more money that could be spent on other things. Um, so it's it's kind of a practical thing from a space uh, discussion, but it's also um, from a from a, a fiscal sustainability discussion. You can have that. You can argue about that too, because I think that you know, nineteen percent of your income shouldn't be going towards your transportation. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, if you're if you're in a suburb, and and you should get back down to under five percent, and I think you can do that if you take the transportation side of the argument. Yeah, indeed. I've seen um, some charts laying out cities by each other by um, what you were just talking about, transportation costs. Mm-hmm. And it's it's counterintuitive, right? Because a lot of the cities that you think very low cost of living, like the one I used to live in, Indianapolis, there it's 25% on average of your income dedicated mm-hmm. just to moving. Where mm-hmm. New York City, I think if I remember right, was around like 10% right now. Right. Very counterintuitive. Think about yeah, exactly, and think about how much you're paying, how, how much that 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 money matters to to folks, um, especially if you're you know fighting just to get by. If you can reduce your expenditures from twenty five percent to ten percent, that's fifteen percent of income. That's a huge amount of money for uh, for a low income person. So it makes a big difference. And um, forcing people to get in cars, however convenient or comfortable they are, is just expensive. And they become less convenient. I mean, everybody feels this inherently, right? If you're driving a car in the loop in Chicago, <laughs> it's not a fun experience. I, I rented a car, you know, maybe a couple months ago, go home to Indy for Christmas. And, you know, I started at a rental place in the loop and it was terrifying. I hadn't driven in a long time <laughs> since I too sold my car, you know, last year. But yeah, it was a reminder, you know, cars don't really belong here. No. No, I went. I I got a car recently to go run an errand, and was coming back home and returning it because I I do car share, and uh, if if I need it, and uh, we were, I was like, oh, we'll get home ahead of time because there's a time limit on the how long you know I took it for an hour or whatever, and uh, oh, it's like, and it was five o'clock, and then I turned a corner and like this massive traffic jam appeared <laughs> in the mission, oh, and your heart and, sank. Uh, and I was like, oh, no. So we sat in the traffic until uh, we got there on time. But we, I, if the roads were clear, it would have been a 15 minute, um, you know, 15 minute ahead of time. But then we got there just on time because of the traffic, which was entertaining uh, because, you know, maybe, maybe we probably couldn't have taken a, a transit trip just for because of the size of the item that we had to purchase. But um, it was quite hilarious that I got stuck in traffic at 5 p.m. on a, on a Thursday or Friday <laughs> yeah, indeed. <laughs> in the city. And I was like, why, this is why I don't do this. This is exactly why I don't do this. That's a fresh reminder. Right. Exactly. Perfect. 
Yeah. <laughs> so why do you think, especially us North Americans, struggle to make this link right between transit and the frustration of cars in our more dense areas, right? And the, and the trade-offs that come with that. You know, we still, I think, fairly stubbornly cling to our cars as that's transportation, but you know, you're, you're painting a picture and there's even more details that you haven't mentioned of why like transit really is linked with increased livability of a dense place. Yeah. Well, I think it, you know, tomorrow I'm actually going to be talking with um, Greg Schill, um, who's actually, I think he's from Chicago and he's and he took the, um, the California Zephyr into California, uh, to come. Um, it's a professor of law and he, um, you know, he talks about the, and I'm just actually, the reason why this is coming up, I think, is because I'm just doing the research for tomorrow's podcast <laughs> and uh, trying to read as much as I can on it. Uh, but I, you know, one of the things that he mentions is that it's ingrained in our, in our society uh, from everything, uh, from tort law to the rules and regulations of how roads are governed um, to insurance law to general, you know, we, we've subsidized um, housing at the far reaches of our communities that make it more impossible to take transit. Um, and we've basically subsidized it such that people, you know, feel like it's the way to go. So the reason I think that it's gotten so to the point where we rely on cars so much is because it's just kind of drilled in. I mean, think about the commercials in the television or the media that you watch and how many of them are car commercials how much of it is ingrained in your personality from just growing up as a young age and how they're seen as freedom machines and the ability to go on dates with women or to uh, go out to eat whenever you want or those types of things and the same can't be said for transit or cycling where um, yesterday <laughs> yesterday I was watching Siren Live and um, it was John Mulaney and uh, they made a, a joke about being poor and taking your bike, and um, you know those those little tiny micro, tiny microaggressions against uh, bicycling and, and transit and walking um, are going to hit you know many many times over the course of your life. And yeah. I think that in other places you see where they actually celebrate cycling or celebrate walking and biking uh, and and transit usage. I mean, in um, you know, in Brussels and, and in Belgium, they always have these really cool commercials <laughs> about taking the bus and how nifty it could be or or the subway and how it how it takes you from here to there and yeah. in, a, in a reasonable fashion time time frame. And it does there because they invest in their systems. Um, we have chronically underinvested in our transit and overinvested in our automobiles. And that's not to say that eventually we can't get there. I'm not going to be fatalist about it, but um, there's just been a structure in place that has just placed the automobile over any other type of transportation um, for such a long time that it's going to be really hard to pull out all the tentacles. Yeah, indeed. Do you think uh, economics are eventually going to drive it, or what do, you, what do you think is going to be the main force of change here? I think it'll be economics. I think it'll be uh, climate, the discussion around climate. People are going to get smart to what's happening and um, the planet. I don't know if that's going to hit how fast or soon that's going to hit. It might be when sea levels start to rise or when they finally start to realize that something's changing in the, in the, in the environment. Um, I talked about loss of butterflies earlier. I think we're getting these little hints, the canaries in the coal mines of what's going on. Um, but economics is a big thing too. I mean, you saw the, the last couple of days, the, the coronavirus and the, the stock market fall. And that's an indicator that 
something's not right, something's uh, unhealthy in the system. And so then it's not as resilient maybe as it should be. And um, so I think that eventually people will start to realize what, how much of a drag this is on our economy and not just, not just transportation, but housing as well. I mean, how much not being able to build housing in a place like California is a drag on the environment. I think there's been estimates about how much uh, has been knocked off our GB- GDP just because, uh, which, you know, there's some people that argue that GDP isn't the best, uh, best way to measure economic output, but we'll go with it for now. Um, but how much, you know, productivity we don't have because we haven't been able to build in the places that are the most productive, um, like the Chicago's or the, um, San Francisco's or New York cities or bigger cities around the country. And so I think eventually the economics are going to get people, um, and, uh, a new wave of folks are going to grow up in, in a different environment and they're not going to see it as a negative. They'll see it as a positive, but it's going to take a long time. I mean, the Netherlands who was famously bike focused, you know, they didn't, start changing things uh, until the 50s and then what really got them was the the oil crisis and so here after the oil crisis we started going doubling down on on our automobile addictions and our sprawl and in Europe they started going the opposite direction and so you can see that we were both on the same trajectory but you can see how one incident or a couple of incidents in history changed what the end result was so it's not um, that they're, they've always been like that or they're better than us or anything like that. It's just that there was some decision they made along the way to, to go a certain direction and they did it. So I think that's something that we sometimes overlook is that you know the European countries were going the same direction as we were in terms of car usage and oil and all that stuff, but they made a decision at some point when there was a decision to be made to go a different direction. And uh, I think we're seeing the different trajectories now in our, in our policies and our results. Yeah, indeed. That's that's well said. And I was in uh, Belize over Christmas to New Year's, and it's first time, you know, in Central America for me. And I was I was taken aback a little bit of like how, in general, friendly to pedestrians and biking and even buses. Right? They didn't have subways or anything like that, or even trains. But um, you know that that place was was a lot different than the U.S. Right? And I couldn't help but think, you know, probably for there, it's about the economics more than anything. I think our reliance on cars is probably about economics for us as well. Um, Mm -hmm. Our wealth enables us to keep these very wide streets in place and prioritize, you know, the most inefficient way of getting around in dense places in particular. Yeah, the most um, quote-unquote comfortable. (laughs) Right. But everybody, as as you mentioned earlier, comfort levels and uh, livability is is a different uh, different equation for every person. Absolutely, and even mine has changed over my lifetime. Like you, I grew up in the suburbs of Milwaukee in this case, but um, and I used to think driving around was very comfortable, very convenient. Right, go point A to point B. Uh, more often than not, in a city like Milwaukee, you're right in front of the door or close to it. But now that I live car-free, I, I feel the exact opposite. I actually feel like being able to walk to things and, and go anytime I want, not worry about parking, stuff's easy to get to off the sidewalks. Like I feel like I have the easiest, uh, most convenient, almost lazy life possible. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting. You know, I was in, um, I was in Austin over, over New Year's, and we had to drive everywhere because of where my friends lived and, and where we were going. And um, we noticed that <laughs> it's easy to eat a lot and then not get any exercise. <laughs> a lot of beef too, 
Right, right. So barbecue and um, some good tacos and everything, and it's amazing food, and I love it, and I and I miss it a lot um, <laughs> sometimes. But I always enjoy here after you eat, you walk home and <laughs> or take the take walk to the bus and take the bus home, or walk to the the train and take the train home, and then you at least get a little bit of movement afterwards. It, it feels like when you hop in a car right away, it's just um, stifling on your on your metabolism. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And your health catches up quickly. It does, it does. <laughs> this conversation on Livable City will be right back. So on your podcast, you've interviewed you know, hundreds of guests at this point from around the globe, and many who are professionals, you know, that that do uh, transit for a living, different kinds. So, is there anything you've noticed in all those interviews and people you've talked to, uh, folks that live in particularly livable cities in relation to their transit? I don't know if they all have a common. I mean, aside from, I guess the reason I asked them to come on is because I feel like they share a view or have a. Um, an interesting thing to say about being in a livable city or a transportation mode that's interesting or or learning something about what's going on. Um, I would say that um, for the most part, they're mostly, uh, most of them are livable cities ad- advocates and they care about transit and they care about livability and design of things uh, deeply. I think a lot of them also came up, came into the the field of transportation or urban, urban design, urban planning, because they care so much uh, about what they're doing. They care about people and, and want to make a difference in, in the world. And maybe they didn't feel like they were doing that in their previous jobs. And so they, or their previous lives. So they decided to get into this, uh, in, into this uh, field. And I think that that's pretty standard for a lot of folks in our field is that they're super fascinated with how people live and how people get around and, and they want to make a difference in 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 the in the world in some form or fashion. So I think that's probably the the kind of the the theme that that crosses through all almost all the folks that I've interviewed. And I and I do that on purpose. I there's been a few times when <laughs> I get some publicists that ask me to to have somebody on on the show that I'm just not going to have on the show because they don't agree with my general philosophy. And you don't have to always agree with my general philosophy because I'm more than happy to have people that have different uh, viewpoints, but yeah. I'm not going to have somebody who's, you know, peddling their 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 automobile uh, uh, superiority. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. That'd be an awkward conversation anyway. Yeah, uh, well that's the thing is like why would you want to come on the show that doesn't like your way of doing things <laughs> to promote something? It's not not really helpful. <laughs> so glutton for punishment, I guess. Right? Like it, I think one of them was promoting a car show or something like that and and I was like that's just not it's not, that's not going to end well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the conversation's not going to end well. Not at all. Yeah. So uh, of of your guests, you know, how do they how do they tend to see their role in transit and and um, transit's role itself. Do they, uh, you know, is it is it something really important to them, or do they simply have like different institutions in place that keep transit um, high quality transit as a priority? You know, where they live. Does that question make sense? Can you rephrase it, maybe? Yeah. So, is there something inherent, like like an institution or or something outside of them that that keeps them 
um, seeing transit is very important. Like their job is very important to the livability of the city. Well, I think it's mostly because they live in the city and they know that if you you can't you can't fill a city with cars and have it function correctly uh, in a way that functions well for everybody. So when folks come on the show, I'm I'm guessing that most of them have already realized the inherent, uh, as Jarrett Walker would say, geometry problem of of cities and transportation where. Like I said earlier, you know, if you're inside the loop, it, it's it's silly to us who who understand the geometry problem to even drive a car in 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 there. And I think that these are people that deal with this on a daily basis and a weekly basis, trying to make change in their places. And they know underneath it all that it's a geometry problem, and they, it's something they need to fix. And so I think they're already coming at it from the idea that the way that we've tried it in the past has already failed, and we need to fix fix it such that it works better for everybody um, to get into the places where they want to go in these bigger cities. And I often say on my podcast, um, you know, it's not going to work for everybody. Transit's not going to work for everybody because of the way we've laid out our, our, our streets and our, in our region as a whole. But in these cities and in these places where there is a geometry issue, it is the only way to go because ultimately you can't fit more people on a street. <laughs> you know, you can't widen the streets in a city either. I mean, they tried that with the uh, freeway, you know, freeways, and they got a big revolt back in the 50s and 60s. So, you know, we're at a po- point now where we're starting to have this discussion almost all over again because of the technology companies that are getting into this. And they, a lot of them, I'm sure, didn't grow up in cities. And they're not coming from it from a, a place of management of the existing uh, assets that we have in our cities in terms of streets. So, this is why you see people like Jeff Tomlin and and uh, Salita Reynolds and these transportation, um, you know, leaders in our in our cities starting to you know talk more about the geometry and how you can only fit so much so many people on a street. We have these assets that we need to take care of and that we are responsible for in in terms of the transportation department. And um, you know, you just can't fit more people and more Ubers and more Lyfts that are only four-door vehicles in these spaces. You need to think about it from a, a perspective of the future, where we have even more people trying to get to these places and even more um, commerce happening. I think one of the biggest things that you hear a lot from these folks too is that if you want to have a successful city, you want traffic, you want people, you want you know, to be a place where people want to go. It's that old Yogi Berra <laughs> saying, it's so it's so busy, nobody goes there anymore, right? Um, I love that quote. <laughs> and I think cities want the, the vibrancy of people. They want people to come. But at the same time, you can only have so many people come via the conveyance of a, of a four-door vehicle. So managing that is the, the charge of every transportation leader in the country right now that works in a city trying to get more people without doing it the way Detroit did it, which is kill a total economy. Um, and you know, there's no traffic there. Um, that's the same as a New York city or a Houston or a, or a San Francisco. But, um, but that's the way if, if you really wanted to do it, you could do it that way, or you could do it through pricing and, and using uh, transportation as a, as a way to get people where they want to go in a, in a timely fashion. I think the, the best thing about the New York subway is that you can, Pretty much. I mean, I know that there's been issues in the last decade or so, but you can pretty much depend on it to get you where you want to go in a certain amount of time. There's a funny story. I was I was visiting a friend, and I was up on the Upper East Side um, visiting map shops, as you do. <laughs> and of course, uh, and uh, 
And I was like freaking out because I had to get back down to the the place, you know, next to where the World Trade Center was, um, and or is now, I guess there's there's still a World Trade Center there, but in, in that area. And I was on the Upper East Side, and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm never going to get to the airport in time. I'm going to have to go all the way down there and get my bag, and then go back, and then so because I had walked all the way up from uh, from that area all the way up to uh, to Central Park. And um, it took me almost all day to do that. And yeah, then that's I got a long on the walk. I got on the train, and uh, and it took me like ten fifteen minutes to get back down there. And I was like, "No way! This is the best thing ever! It was so <laughs> fast!" And you would have never gotten like that on the on the surface streets. Oh no! Um, you'd have never had that time time saving. So, I think that's just kind of a perfect encapsulment of of what I'm talking about. Is there's an efficient way to do things, and you can do it in a way that's uh, that's efficient for everybody, and it works for everybody. Um, but it requires uh, people being a little bit less selfish about how they get around. Yeah, talk more about that. And I think actually New York City is a really interesting thing to hold in all of our minds as we think about this. Right, that that gridlock of taxis and Ubers and Lyfts and trucks, delivery trucks and all that stuff just sitting gridlocked, you know, in Manhattan. Yeah. Why, you know, why do we, why do we put up with that? Why, why is that less than, than good for livability, right? What, what suffers as a result of that? Well, the ability of people to go to shops and stores because they, they, you know, think about your, your mental map when you want to go somewhere. So let's say a place is easy to get to. And you are on the fence about whether you're going to go somewhere. Like maybe let's say let's say you're in New York City and you want to go to a Knicks game at the Garden. And if you have it in your mind that you can get there so easily because you just take the train, you're like, oh, I'll just take the train. It'll take 20 minutes and it'll be no problem. And it'll be in and out. And then when we get off, you know, get out of the out of the game, um, we won't have to worry about uh, traffic now. Kind of conversely, let's think about going to like a Dallas Cowboys game. Do you want to go to a game and then have to sit in the traffic jam that results from everybody leaving in their cars nope. <laughs> for the next hour or two? Um, I did this one time at Candlestick when the Niners still played there, and it was a two hour trip out of the parking lot. And it makes no sense. It makes no sense. Um, to do that. So think about all your everyday trips. I mean, that's just like a special event, but think about your everyday trip. If it's easy to get to the grocery store because it's just around the corner or you can walk to it or it's like a five-minute trip on a bus and it's the five-minute trip every single day, then you're actually going to say, oh, well, I can get to that. But if you have a a situation where you're in traffic all the time and you feel like it's unreliable to get places you might not make that trip and so think about that from a commerce perspective of how you know businesses actually work they depend on customers to come in when they feel like they want to come in and this is you know this is the best example of of why you know checkout counters always have extra candy and <laughs> and and uh, gum at your disposal when you go through because it's one of those impulse buys. But you can't be impulsive if the tra- transportation network isn't working for you. It's not. It's it, it leads you to stay in more often and not actually be a p- more you know be a more part of of the commercial landscape. So I, that, that's kind of the way I would think about it. Uh, why it's important is is it allows people to get to where they're going and where they want to go, and even so, if they are making a last minute kind of impulsive decision to go and do something from a commercial standpoint. Yeah, that makes sense. And I know some folks uh, who have a preference for maybe more that exurban or suburban or country living, right? Would just say, 
get rid of those dense centralized areas, right? And we'll all spread out. And then you won't have that traffic issue, right? Because everybody <laughs> will be spread out and we won't we won't hate each other and be in, on each other's nerves and that kind of thing. Oh, but then it costs a lot more. <laughs> You're talking about Frank Lloyd Wright in the Broadacre City where everybody lives on an acre and there's a street on every, uh, every mile of grid. Um, but without that tax base in the center, I, I get this feels, I feel like I'm talking about, I feel like I'm uh, Joe Minakazi and talking about strong from strong towns or something. <laughs> um, but when you, when you do that, I mean, you're basically losing all of your tax base that generates the revenue that can actually build those streets. Right. So, um, <laughs> if you want to live in those areas, um, you better be ready to pay for them. Uh, otherwise you're, you know, the wealth that's created from cities is, is valuable and it can be used, um, in ways that we can't even imagine yet because we've been wasting it so for so many years. I mean, I think about think about what's happening in in China, how they've been investing so much in uh, infrastructure, in subways, in uh, high speed rail between cities, and think about how much uh, we've been spending on roads, and they've been spending on roads too. That's not that's not what basically not what I'm saying, but think about the investments that are being made in urbanism uh, in in there, and then what's going to happen to the economy in like 20 years? So what's What's our economy going to look like in 20 years versus what their economy is going to look like in 20 years? I have a, a theory that it might look a little bit different because of the investments that are being made. And it's not just China, it's South Korea, it's uh, England right now. They're, they're building their high speed rail too. They're building the cross rail program. They're also investing $5 billion in bikes and buses and what the Netherlands and other countries have been doing for a long time, what cities all around the world are doing that we're not doing. So, um, you know, it's not just China, but it's it's all the countries, and what we invest in will 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 give an indication of of how our economies are going to be in the next twenty, thirty, fifty years. Yeah, indeed, uh, pun intended. But we'll be stuck in gridlock, basically, <laughs> right? While everybody else in a lot of these other countries is moving around, uh, you're not without some friction, of course. But you know, they'll be free to move around. Is is my point? Yeah. Yeah, they, that's that's the that's the, the hypothesis. We'll see if it bears out. Yeah, but what about autonomous cars? Aren't they gonna Aren't they gonna save us? They can, uh, you know, if they're cleanly powered, you know, through uh, green electricity and that, and they basically can go almost form like a train right on the streets. You know, if they're fully autonomous, aren't they gonna solve all of our geometry issues? I think you know the answer to that one. Oh, I know. I'm just playing devil's advocate. <laughs> I think you know the answer to that one. I mean, it, it's the same thing with the geometry problem. I mean, you, you mentioned it just now, but um, I've seen all these vehicles coming out that are four-door vehicles with four wheels and um, and they're four seats. And they just change up the way you're sitting. Maybe maybe you're sitting to like look at somebody instead of sitting in a configuration where you're not looking at somebody. And, and what happens there is that you're still filling up 250 square feet of space with four people instead of uh, 350 square feet of space with 50 people. And it's it's just a, a difference in geometry. And also there's some privacy concerns uh, not, not and safety concerns as well. Do you want to take a ride in a, in a vehicle that's small with another person that you don't know? Or do you want to have a vehicle where there's an attendant or a driver um, available? There's all kinds of things that we haven't known yet about what the, uh, the autonomous vehicle revolution is going to bring us, and whether it's going to be shared and uh, electric or whether it's going to be um, if every person owns their own autonomous vehicle and then there's these zombie vehicles driving around. Who knows? Um, but I just don't, I just don't buy into that uh, 
as a long-term uh, savior of our of our transportation system. I think right. for the same reasons we've talked about all episode, which is that geometry problem. Yeah, and my observation too is I, I read read stories about this, watch videos of you know new innovations coming out of like Silicon Valley around this. They to me it seems like they're reinventing trains. So <laughs> we're like, and buses and buses we're coming like full circle. So why not just like optimize what we have today, right, and make it better and more high quality? Yeah, and it's so easy to do. You know, we're learning so much um, and. Early on, when I started my blog, The Overhead Wire, back in 2006, um, I was talking, you know, my, my focus was mostly on light rail and the expansion of rail in, in cities around the country and subways and those types of things. And um, through the advocacy of a lot of people, I've learned a lot about how we can improve our bus networks and how we can improve our cities through transportation action that is not necessarily related to rail or, or cars. And um, there's some low-hanging fruit out there. There's service-level changes that we can make. There's small changes to the street that you can make that improves the the how how buses move. You know, there's uh, if we've learned anything from Zurich uh, uh, in Switzerland is that you give trams priority through intersections. That imp- even if they're in street with traffic, and you give them priority at an intersection, that will improve the travel times dramatically. So. There's little things we can do to to make a big difference, but we just haven't kind of put our our effort into the little things because they're not super sexy. Um, hopefully now they will be, <laughs> but um, hopefully but, indeed. You know, yeah, I think that the the tide is changing in terms of what we deem important. Um, and I, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be expanding light rail or subways or anything like that. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying that the the network as a whole is really important and. You know, there are streets that that need to have frequent bus service. There are streets that are so congested with with buses already that maybe the light rail or um, or subway is the right answer. Um, you know, they're talking about in Austin building a subway uh, in part uh, in downtown uh, for a new light rail line that they're building. I say, great, let's do it. I've been talking about that since the year two thousand, but. <laughs> um, but they also need to improve their their bus network to where all the buses uh, along the major lines come every you know five to ten minutes, and then they'll have a revolution on their hands. Chicago's done a lot lately on their um, most frequent bus lines to do some bus priority lanes. Um, I'm not super uh, super happy with that they restrict it to a very narrow window for rush hour only. But mm-hmm. um, but it, it has made a noticeable difference on these lines. Now these are the busiest ones, so right. you're, you're talking about doing. Little tweaks like this, right? That that's where we start. Yeah, yeah. I think service level increases, and then um, you know, uh, queue jump lanes to start with, maybe some signal priority. But then when you get to the lanes that are carrying so many buses that you're you're getting um, you're getting some bus gridlock, then you start to do the lanes uh, for the buses. I actually talked to um, a woman in in Boston uh, recently who was saying that they're. Uh, one of their major uh, thoroughfares has so many buses coming, uh, and they take about sixty-seven percent of the people on the street, and yet they have four lanes of general-purpose traffic. And so, if they change um, change the configurations of the streets, they can actually make some huge improvements for the riders in the area. And the riders are all on board, and, and a lot of the people in the in the neighborhood are on board too. You just have to explain how it works and and what needs to be done to to fix the. The fortunes of so many people who are who are taking transit and uh, make it you know something that people will appreciate. So, I, we see this happening around the country. I think it's really 
really taking off. And you'll see cities like Seattle have really invested in their bus network, and it's it's starting to pay off. Their their ridership is increasing. Their service is increasing. Their their trips to downtown are increasing, uh, and their share of the people are taking transit over driving cars to downtown for work is changing. So it'll happen. It just needs to be kind of more forceful um, uh, over, from a policy perspective, from from the federal level all the way down to local. Yeah, indeed. You know, something I like to talk a lot about on here is is helping empower folks to to help lead these changes that we need in our local places. So what, what would you say to somebody, one of our listeners, uh, who is interested in saying, say, doing something like what you just described in Boston, right? If, if they're like, I know my street, it, it could be inverted and it would make a huge difference. And the number is already there, just needs to happen. So where do they get started? Well, that's a good question. And in, in every city is different, right? It's how you uh, interact with the system. I think if you're in a place like Boston, you go to the local advocacy group and see, you know, what they're up to. Transit Matters has been a big, big part of what's been going on in Boston, and from the advocacy advocacy perspective. Uh, or you can, you know, go maybe check out some of the local meetings where the, these discussions are happening. And if you want to make a change on your street, maybe you just start the advocacy yourself. <laughs> you know, um, there have been a number of people who just decide, decide to start doing, um, you know, tactical changes to their streets little by little and asking permission or not asking permission and, and, and starting to see a difference. Um, maybe go to city hall, see if the transportation department is, is, uh, le- willing to lend an ear. Um, there's any number of ways you can start to get involved, but I would say find your local transportation advocacy group and see if they're jiving with what you're with what you're proposing, and then you know big things can happen if you you know little little changes can make big things happen. Yeah, indeed. So you're you're talking about basically starting very small, very localized, um, unless there is an advocacy org that's doing something grander. But if not, right, like start with what's important to you right where you live or right where you work or maybe they're the same place. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, if you have an idea for something that you'd want to change, think about what that might be, draw up some plans, draw up some ideas, read the literature, see what the NACTO guides are telling you. And then, you know, you can go and talk to the city and see if that's something that can be changed right away. Maybe it is. Maybe maybe there's already a program in place for these changes to be made, but they just need a list of projects. Who knows? Um, usually it's part of a big capital plan, and there's, you know, in bigger cities it's more complicated um, for obvious and non-obvious reasons. But even in, 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 uh, in those big cities where there are these big plans already, you can make small changes by just going and, and, uh, you know, seeing what, what has been done in other cities. I would recommend, uh, you know, the tactical urbanism guide, um, from Mike Leiden, Tony Garcia, and, uh, you know, check out what, what's been done before. And maybe that's something that can be done in, in your city as well. Yeah, that's a good tip. What about for those smaller, medium-sized cities where maybe they don't even have any public transit today, but um, maybe uh, some of our listeners feel like they're ripe for it, but obviously that's a huge conversation to have community-wise. What would you recommend for them? Well, typically in a lot of the smaller cities, they do have transit networks, but the the advocacy organizations or the advocates are, are small in number because the, the communities are smaller in number. I'd say the biggest thing is just finding like-minded people in your community and then start working together. It, it's it's yeah. nice to do things on your own, um, but at the same time, it, things are be- you're better with numbers. I know that there's folks like in Santa Cruz, for example, that are working really hard to get um, you know this old abandoned rail railway 
changed into a commuter rail line, and they're trying to focus on getting the bus network changed and and getting more investment in the system. And um, it really helps that they've actually banded together as a group instead of going one by one and doing it. So not that I don't think that individual action isn't important, but I think if you meet with like-minded people, you can actually get a lot done, and it's kind of exponential in the amount of impact you can have. Yeah, that matches uh, some of the previous conversations I've had on here. Basically, you start as an individual, right? Somebody needs to step up if it's not being done today, and you know, and basically say, "We're going to do this," and then go find those other people who are thinking similarly. Yeah, and this is something that's happened back when I started blogging. Was that there were all these little blogs in these cities all over the all over the country, and what happened was when you started writing a blog about it, people could find what you're talking about, right? So. All the folks, you know, places in in uh, Washington D.C., Greater Greater Washington, that started as David Alpert's blog, but then it started growing a group uh, blog type of aesthetic. You have Streets.mn, you have Urban Milwaukee, you have Seattle Transit Blog. All these places started as little tiny blogs and somebody's a glimmer in somebody's eye, and they started them and started writing about things, and then they started connecting with not just people inside their community, but people all over the country. And so you, and now you have these networks of, of organizations that can share information and share knowledge with each other. And I think that's one of the most important things um, that I, 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 I'm trying to do is, is share information with people about cities. Because when you learn about what can be done, you have a better uh, way of moving forward and getting things done because all these little places, uh, you know, all these little blogs start out as little blogs and and they moved into something bigger. Now you have Seattle Transit Blog. You know, the, all the people inside of City Hall are reading it because <laughs> that's where the the opinions are coming from that are going to impact how um, change is made in the city. And same thing with Transit Matters in Boston. They were just like a little organization, but now they've made big changes and Greater Greater Washington. Now they have hired staff to be writers and uh, follow urban issues. So it can all start maybe with a little blog and, and, and organizing something in your city to where you get the attention of all the decision makers and uh, write something small. Start, it's not doesn't have to be big. I mean, you starting the podcast, right? This is what you care about. You're interested in. You started it because you felt like you felt like you can make a difference. So it's it's the things like that that actually make a bigger difference in the long term. Yeah, indeed. And uh, you know, particularly around my podcast, people are starting to come around it, and you know, I, I know a lot more people as a result of it, and so I know a lot more. I have more connection, and I've seen other people do similar things, right? I'm sure you have a connection, uh, a network around your podcast and and the other things that you do and that grows a stronger movement right towards mm-hmm. saying what everybody values together which is ultimately what gets built or what we experience in our cities absolutely absolutely how about um, do you have any good resources that you'd send people to online or books that are kind of your go go to's towards uh, learning about transit and the livability of of how transit affects things Oh gosh, um, yeah, I have a stack. <laughs> I bet you do. That's why I ask. <laughs> I have a stack. Um, some that I haven't read, and many that I have. Um, in terms of design, I'd go to the NACTO guides. I think those are really important to kind of look through and learn about how you can design streets for for transit. There's the NACTO transit design guide. There's the bike design guide. There's the the international design guide. They have a big list, and I think a lot of them are online for free. They're PDFs, so you don't even have to go and buy them. They're they're free resources. Um, I think there was a and maybe it was the Rockefeller Foundation or another a donor was very kind, um, or maybe it was Bloomberg. 
um, somebody along those lines basically made it so you can download those those documents. Uh, so you don't have to have the book, but you can you can access them. Um, in terms of um, speaking about transit in a in a in a basic uh, voice, I think always uh, the always uh, um, uh, interesting human transit from uh, Jarrett Walker. That's a that's a book that's kind of a good basic. Uh, primer on on uh, the, these issues that we're talking about in terms of space and and uh, frequency. Um, in terms of general books, you know, I'm I'm just a huge um, history uh, uh, buff too. So going back in history, I think is is good. Um, we're doing the the uh, city and history by Lewis Mumford is always a good a good book to think about too. So um, going back in time and reading some of those old tomes uh, might be a good a good way to go as well. So those are those are some basic ones I think that are important. Um, over the years, I've I've done interviews with a lot of folks that are talking about a lot of different things, and so if you have a particular topic in mind, <laughs> rather rather than more general, um, I think there's probably a book for it out there. Yeah, indeed, that's a good list. I'll try and uh, capture those for our listeners um, in the show notes and and the, and the release announcements. So thanks for that. Yeah, no problem. So as we come to a close on this conversation, um, do you have any final thoughts you want to leave with our listeners? Oh gosh, about what? <laughs> whatever you want, whatever you want. Well, uh, if we're going along the theme of advocacy, I think that um, you know, like I said, starting small and, and building up into a bigger movement is is a really big thing. I mean, I just started a blog and and started writing on it in 2006, and and um, you know, and I made it into a business eventually, and that was kind of a cool thing. I think that uh, getting together with like-minded people is 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 really fun as well, and and chatting and having beers and and going out and and uh, you know tackling these issues together, going to conferences. Um, I got the, I got the, my first job by going to a conference and saying hi to people, and uh, back in two thousand five. And so I think that if you're a younger uh, listener and you're just getting out of school or you're trying to kind of make your way in this in this crazy world of of advocacy or transportation planning um, or even city planning. You know, try to meet as many people as possible, and you might be introverted or shy, but I, I guarantee you that most of them, if not all of them, won't bite. Um, go <laughs> say hi to people, go to conferences, um, you know, meet people, go and uh, shake hands, um, or maybe now with uh, the coronavirus, maybe just tap feet. Um, but uh, <laughs> or but wash go, your hands. Yeah, wash your hands. Go, go, just go out and um, and visit people, uh, visit with them, and and you know, one of the things about uh, podcasting. That I've found is that um, if you if you start something and you email people and ask them to come and chat with you, they're more than happy to for the most part. Um, I don't think I've ever had anybody say no. I'm not going to come on your show. <laughs> so um, you know, people are really nice, and and if you're just nice to them, they'll they'll be nice back. And I think that you know, asking about you know, mentors and trying to get people to to help you with questions and things like that. I think that's a really underlooked. Uh, way to to get involved is just go talk to people. That's really good advice. Yeah, where can everybody find you and your work online? Sure, you can find the newsletter at theoverheadwire.com. You can find the podcast Talking Headways uh, on theoverheadwire.com, or you can find it wherever you find your podcasts: um, iTunes, Stitcher, uh, SoundCloud, etc. And um, yeah, and you can find me on Twitter at, at theoverheadwire. Awesome. And you want to give a quick pitch on what Talking Headways and Overhead Wire are about? Sure. So the Overhead Wire is basically a newsletter about cities. And we, like I said, uh, I think I was telling you beforehand, we go through about 1,500 articles a day and we pull out the 30 that we think are the most interesting. So 
um, send them to our subscribers. We actually have a, a two-week trial, free trial, so if folks want to sign up, they can go to theorbedwire.com and do that. Um, Talking Headways is our, our weekly podcast where we talk to folks about transportation, urban planning, urban design, those types of issues. And uh, we've covered topics all the way from colonists on the Texas and Mexico border to uh, transportation planning issues that affect us all. We've talked to folks from the public health realm to um, folks that are building uh, transit systems in other countries. And, and uh, you know, it's been really fun talking to everybody about these top topics and issues. So that's a fun one. And then Mondays at the Overhead Wire is our Monday show, where basically we um, we cover all the news that we talked about on the newsletter the week before. So the the top stories, the ones that people clicked on the most and were interested in, we'll talk about those in more detail. So we do the podcast, we do the newsletter, and um, and we're on Twitter a lot as well. So you can find find us there too. So uh, we're pretty easy to reach. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Yeah. So everybody, if that sounds interesting to you, go check those out. I think you'll enjoy them. I definitely have for, for a number of years now. So show Jeff some love there. Uh, well, Jeff, it's been absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you so much for doing it. And again, for helping me get it started with your uh, wonderful experience and wisdom around it. Well, well, thanks for having me on, Jim. I re- really appreciate it. Yeah, we'll have to do this again sometime. For sure. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation that I had with Jeff. Please feel free to reach out to him if you have questions for him and come join us in the Liberal City Facebook group if you have questions that he can't answer. Don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes, Google, and Spotify, and please share this podcast with at least one person you know who would enjoy it. Also, please let me know if you want to hear me interview someone on Liberal City that you think others need to hear the story of their great work. I'm always looking for amazing people doing amazing things for their places and the people who live around them. As always, remember first to listen, learn, and then lead. Talk to you next time. Bye, everyone.